I like to have control of the environment. I like to have control of the situation. Welcome to the room. <laughs> exactly. Same. Same. So I'm amongst friends. Yes. <laughs> what is my relationship with hope? <laughs> hey, this is Grand Exit, conversations starting conversations about living, dying, and living on. We're sharing real talk on the life-death legacy continuum now, so we don't wait to the end to talk about what matters most. Enter here if you intend to be remembered. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Grand Exit, the podcast. You're here with Tamitha and Chelsea for a deep-diving conversation with our guest, John Hasse, my husband. For the past 20 years, John's been in the financial services industry, and he's now head of marketing for an asset management firm. You'll hear that in the way he shows up. As you'll hear him say, he's also the CFO of the Hasse family, <laughs> a role he plays differently these days as he prepares for his wife's eventual death while also working to stay in the now. Let's dive in. So today I get to be here with both Hossies. Hey. We're missing Harper. <laughs> she politely declined. She, she, she did decline. Which should come as no surprise. Hard decline, sort of politely. <laughs> We're going to talk about this experience from a partner's point of view and what it feels like to be a caretaker, a husband, a dad, and a human experiencing mm -hmm. this experience as a family constellation with your wife, partner, friend, in hopes that there's a little bit of wisdom or more for anyone who's sitting in your seat or Tamitha sitting in yours. We've really scoured the internet for res good resources. And there are many, mm -hmm. but they lack the like flavor and humanity that we were hoping for. And so we're here to bring the pizzazz. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want pizzazz, John is definitely the person to see. Oh man, you are really upselling me. I'm not sure I can <laughs> Well, we heard your this. dance moves as a cowboy, so that's really why we invited you. <laughs> the only move. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen right now. <laughs> Knowing that this can be an opportunity to like share some guidance just by sharing experience, that's really the intention today. Mm -hmm. When I was thinking of who's taking care of whom, right? And for the purposes of this conversation, John is the caretaker. But also it feels like because my conversations for the last few years have been with Tamitha, I also know that Tamitha holds a lot of space for John and Harper. Harper, where we're not mentioning you, we mean to also be mentioning you. <laughs> mm. We mean family. So it sort of feels like the caretaker, like the caregiving and caretaking is like on infinite loop to me. What does it mean to be taking care of what, of whom and, and when? Like, How do you feel when I say caretaker or caregiver? I think it probably changes over time to some degree. But at this point, with Tamitha's diagnosis and knowing what we're facing, it's just a matter for me of picking up the slack wherever I can and, and not only taking care of Tamitha, but taking care of the family. There are times where it is definitely hard, especially the times when Tamitha's really struggling. So when she's not feeling well after chemo, when she had her C. diff infection, for instance, that was a brutal time. We had some moments where we really wondered how, how is this going to go down? And for me, 
trying to take care of her. She's very stubborn. You don't so, say. <laughs> so you may have obviously <laughs> found this out already, but she is uh, can be stubborn. And when she was at her low point was when she became very, what I would consider to be obstinate. And I knew you were going to use that word. Well, you were. So for me trying to take care of you, that becomes incredibly challenging. We ultimately got you to where you needed to be. It took a little bit of work, but you know, at the same time, you just have to persevere through. While we've had some bad days in the past, the worst is yet to come, and that always weighs in the back of your mind. When you say we got you to where you needed to be, what do you mean? Well, with real care. I couldn't take care of her in bed when she was you know, really just struggling to even sit up more than anything. So getting her to the hospital, getting her to real care. You have these moments of caretaking, but you got to turn that over to somebody who really knows what they're doing and has the tools to really deal with what's going on. It was a learning experience. So mm -hmm. going forward, we know that we're not going to get to uh, such a dire situation again, mm -hmm. but because I don't have the tools to continue to watch her spiral out of control. And emotionally, it's tough. Physically, it's tough on our daughter. I think she really starts to pull away the worst Tamitha feels. Mm -hmm. So I've got to split my time trying to understand what it is that Harper needs versus what Tamitha's going through and, and manage both. They're tough women, but they're also <laughs> very stubborn in their own ways too, so. <laughs> I become caregiver as soon as I feel strong enough again. It's almost like I'm trying to make up for a week I had to lay in bed and shore everybody back up again. You know, I'll try to spend a lot of time with Harper. Since her first day of first grade, we have bagel breakfast Friday. Every Friday morning we go to breakfast before school. There are long periods of times where I don't do bagel breakfast Friday. And so I'm trying to shore that up and I'll take her to get her nails done, you know, like try to do some of the normal things that are special things that we would do. And with John, it's sort of taking back all of the things around the house, especially that I know that he's had to pick up. So going to the grocery store, starting to make food again and starting to clean and do the laundry, you know, those are all things that I just haven't been able to do. I sort of try to overcompensate really quickly once I feel better you know, as Johnny talked about letting the professionals into care and getting me to appropriate care, I think the same can be said for our emotional care that, you know, we have gone without a therapist this whole time um, until recently. And so we are starting to, to notice some cracks that we needed to backfill. It's also looking out for some professional support. Harper has had emotional support all along in, a, in some really good therapists. But in terms of our family, we've also had to, to seek out some, the professionals who, who care well for us in that way. John, how do you tell that Tamith is feeling well enough that you all can poke fun at her again and sort of start to resume business as usual in your house? She's the CEO of the house. I'm the CFO. So. <laughs> And he's a damn good one. And so, you know, having to pick up CEO responsibilities on top of general work responsibilities outside of the home, uh, that's when it becomes tough. But when I know things are better is when she is up and able and willing to, like she said, take Harper to 
scheduled breakfast Friday, when she does feel like going to the store, when she does feel like going to the beach, when she likes, does feel like getting out of the house at any, for any length of time and feel comfortable doing so because unfortunately there just haven't been that many days since she's been on this chemo regimen that she's really felt like being outside of the house for longer than a certain period. That's when I know she's feeling better. I also know when she starts planning trips. <laughs> Again, because he is the CFO. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, now I've got to look at the books and make sure that that fits within the financial realms of what we're talking about. He usually but doesn't. <laughs> usually doesn't, uh, but we find a way. And we find a way because we know that those opportunities are becoming fewer and further between. Can you tell me about your recent trip to Vegas oh, relative to your feeling like Tamitha and John? Mm. How was that? It was outstanding. It was a great, great weekend. <laughs> we did a lot of damage to ourselves, <laughs> but we were with people who we really love and care about. And it was just an awesome, awesome time. In those moments, are you able to compartmentalize the hard parts from like the joy and presence or is it in the back of your mind? Well, after a couple of whiskeys, then <laughs> you really have no, you know, back of your mind things going on. I mean, we really did set aside, I think anyway, all of the stuff that we had been going through over the last few years and just we're on a mission to have fun. Mm -hmm. And we did that. Mm -hmm. We had we planned out our dinners. We had a show we wanted to go to, and then we had a free night, the last night that you alluded to, where we ended up at a piano bar, which is one of my favorite things to do. So dueling pianos at that. And it really, it was a great time, a little too much fun probably. Next thing, <laughs> I just remember getting back to the room and, and Tamitha saying, I think I made a mistake. And I'm like, what are you what are you talking about she says i don't know i think i did something really bad i'm like all right well i tell you what it was 1 30 or 2 a.m or whatever i said I, i'm i gotta go to bed so. <laughs> it couldn't <laughs> have been that bad you can tell me all about that later on i had no idea what had happened all i knew is upon reflection and finding out later that she had picked up the bar tab for this group of people is how friendly they became <laughs> throughout the night and everybody wanted to give hugs and they were offering free drinks free drinks <laughs> they weren't so free after all we actually paid for those drinks so anyway it was it was it was a vegas experience really more than anything. It really was. <laughs> so, but that's that's tamitha she was you know intending to do good and did better than good and whether it be by accident or purposefully, uh, it, it all worked out fine. But it was definitely one of the best nights we've had in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And truth be told, like, I thought I was buying a round, not the entire evening. <laughs> when you say Tamitha intended to do good, and she did better than good. Will you talk to us a little bit about Tamitha's way? What do you love about Tamitha? She lights up a room when she enters. I fell in love with her pretty early on. She's got this great attitude. She's very outgoing. She's 
beautiful, very smart, and is a people pleaser. She wants to please all the time. And I think that's where sometimes doing good and, and going above and beyond is where that comes in, is it's a, a pleasing nature of hers. And that's her way. Her way is to please, is to do good, is to make people happy and feel welcome and appreciated. And all of the things that Chelsea, you or I or any of our friends would could only hope to have in a friendship. Samantha, what's John's way? Steady and good. We've been together a long time. And so the things I love most about him change over time, certainly. But those are the two constants. I can always count on him to come from a place of goodness. And I can always count on him to come from a steady place. He is my very best friend, my very best person. There is no pretense. He would always say things like, the worst thing is to become complacent. And I guess my wish for him after, I mean, it would be a wish right now, certainly, but certainly after I'm dead, is that he finds room to be complacent, to, to be enough and just sit with the abundance that is our life and is the life that he's worked so hard to make for all of us. But he'll be complacent with that and can sit and rest and fish and go on walkabouts with Papa. We've been on this amazing journey over the last 25 years plus. Very clear that I would like to slow down and just take time for myself when the time comes. And that'll happen for sure. But I wouldn't be able to do that if we hadn't done what we had done over the last 25 plus years. How am I the first person crying? <laughs> Melting. <laughs> like eye bookers. <laughs> and regular bookers. Every shot's going to be me being like, Ugh. <laughs> it's okay. You keep on. I'll just keep using my hands. Thank you so much. <laughs> Tamitha told me that when she was diagnosed, you emoted before she did. Can you tell me about that? I was telling Chelsea that Johnny was, I was just saying how we got the call. We were standing at the kitchen island and we got the call and I hung up the call and, and with the phone and said, you know, yeah, they're, they're sure that it's cancer. And you started to cry and that I told you, don't you cry on me. Don't you fall apart on me. I need you to be strong for me. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. And that that was the shittiest thing I could have ever done. It was wrong because it, we both had a, a right to our reactions. And that I think, John, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it um, because my fear is that then you've spent the last four and a half years tamping down that initial reaction of emotion, whatever it is, caregiving should be two lanes. Like there's the emotional part of the lane and then the logistical part of the lane, but that I made it clear pretty early on. I needed you in the logistical lane that I, I couldn't bear to see him fall apart. And that, that was wrong. So I'm sorry. Well, I don't think you need to apologize for that. One, two, 
we've had our roles and you know that I don't typically emote. <laughs> you don't, t- you're not typically anyway, in that lane. So for me to have a reaction like that probably worried you more than anything mm-hmm. because I would typically act as that, <laughs> I don't want to say emotionless rock, but that's kind of what I can be most of the time. So it was scary and I didn't know how to handle it. Quite honestly, I really didn't know what to do because for the first time, this was something that was completely out of my control. I like to have control of the environment. I like to have control of the situation. Welcome to the room. (laughs) Same. Same. So I'm amongst friends, (laughs) but it it really, it, it did. We knew ahead of that, that there was a possibility that was going to happen. We had a conversation about that. I was trying to downplay it in my head as much as possible. So I think when the news finally did break the, hey, look, this is what we have. I, I knew I could do nothing to make it better. And then you start to flash forward and think about, okay, what does this mean? When you all received the diagnosis and you said you started to research, how did you begin the research? What were you looking for? What answers were you seeking? I was seeking a cure, first and foremost. How can we cure this? Which quickly became into how can we treat this and who can best treat it? So I started looking online at different cancer research organizations and came across a couple different ones and ultimately found in our somewhat backyard in in rural Vermont, you're not going to get a lot of specialization in certain areas. And in this particular case, inflammatory breast cancer. We did go see a doctor uh, in Vermont. I asked the question, how many cases like this have you seen? A few. Okay, that's not good enough because we want somebody who has specialization, who has spent enough time with enough patients to understand the different treatment regimens. And uh, that's when we stumbled upon Dana-Farber. And, and, and so Dana-Farber being in Boston, that's a manageable trip. Let's go see them. But seeking a cure, realizing that a cure was probably out of the question, all right, what's the best treatment plan and who can give that? During that time, where did you put your emotions? In my pocket. <laughs> as, as they're often found. <laughs> yeah. You know, the quiet times at night are the hardest. So I probably had some emotion then, but I still had a job to do. I had things to take care of. I've always tried to make sure that I do carve out time to take care of myself whenever I can. Because if I don't, I start to fall apart quickly. And by taking care of myself, it's really just getting outside, exercising, getting fresh air. And, and if I don't have those opportunities to do that, that's where my mind starts to deteriorate pretty quickly. And in my body, too. I mean, if I don't have everything working together, it becomes very challenging. Is there anything you wish you knew then? That you know now? Honestly, don't know. 
what I do know is I've got a friend back east who his wife is going through a similar situation. Knowing what I know now, I've been able to be an outlet for him to talk to about this. And he didn't want to be an outlet. He, he didn't know who to talk to. And he's, he's somebody who I greatly admire because he does wear his emotions on his sleeve. So for me, I wanted to be there for him, but I wanted to give him his space as well. And eventually he came to me uh, one day with a question and then we started talking and realized that both of our spouses were going or had gone through the same treatment plan and talking about the side effects and what their spouses did deal with, are dealing with. I'm glad I was able to be there for him based on the experience I had not everybody understands exactly what this means, just exactly what their spouse feels like on a daily basis, the impact that the chemo has, not only physically, but emotionally as well. You go through one level of hell to get to another level of hell that leads to a third level of hell before you go ring the bell mm. and, I hate the bell. and pretend that it's all better. What is the bell for those who don't know and why do you hate it? At the end of your radiation treatment or at the end of your cancer treatment, you get to ring a bell because you're done. And so you stand in the hallway and you ring this bell and everyone claps. And I hate it because um, not everyone gets to ring the bell. I think it further emphasizes or supports this notion that there are winners and losers in this thing called cancer. and. I don't know, the people who I've lost to cancer, friends, dear friends, I refuse to think that they lost somehow. Again, like for some people, it's important and it means a great deal. And so I'm glad they have it. For me, every time I hear the bell, I know that there are probably thousands of people who never got to ring it that, at that same time. Where have you found support in the process? My family's always been supportive, but I've always really relied on myself for a lot. And we were far away from everybody. The support we got was from our friends back in Vermont. We couldn't have gotten through what we did without them. So by that, it was a meal train that came a few days a week just lending of support. Hey, you want to go out and grab a beer and, and just hang out? I didn't know anybody who had gone through this. I didn't have anybody I could lean on. That's why it was important for me to feel like I could at least be a sounding board for my buddy who's going through this now. I think what it's illuminating is that this, your head was down. You were just getting through the day. You were, yeah. you know, you don't, yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting. Well, it's just grinding through. I mean, there is no stopping. You just keep pushing forward. That's all you can do. And it was not easy. I mean, it's still not easy. It's hard. But resources-wise, it's hard to know where to go. I know that Tamitha has spent some time in cancer support communities. Is that something that interests you? Men's groups or cancer support communities? Or if yes, what about it? If no, why not? I would say that for some, that's probably good. For me, it's really 
working it out in my own head in my own time i've always found kind of to be the best solution for me thinking of you all being caregivers for one another how do you hold john when you have the energy how do you hold john's needs emotionally well you know he alluded to the importance for him of getting outside and exercising running walking i know that you know when i'm feeling good um of course i just want to be with him and yet i know it's also the time that he needs to take to go do whatever go on his walkabouts which can be a couple hours (laughs) and that's how i hold space for him to do what he needs i need to not be selfish in those moments and really give him that time i also do you know he's jokingly referred to himself as the cfo i think a lot of times what that means is that john doesn't take time or use the the money we do have to go on trips for himself do things just for himself um and so i do encourage him often and sometimes that means talking to his brother scott and or his dad and saying hey let's let's get this together let's do this uh, for Johnny or else he just won't go. He won't do it. I, I think maybe I tried to push you early in the beginning when I was first diagnosed to go to a support group, but not pushing him to receive support in the ways that I would, which is externally focused and his is very internally focused. I did give Harper the chance to weigh in here and share any questions that she has for you all or funny or embarrassing or the first two or other or other. That's how I used in funny, embarrassing or other. And the only question she had was, why do you guys press her so much about cleaning her room? Oh, my God. Because it's a disaster always. <laughs> Part of my um, issue with her room, just so she can hear this, is that we are aware that we're raising an only child and that there are lots of jokes about only children and lots of like people who say, oh, you know, she's such an only child. That is what we're parenting against. We're trying to like make this only child not be so only childish. And she's going to be a horrible college roommate. And yeah. it's all about understanding that it isn't always all about you yes. that there's a good chance you're going to have a college roommate one day and don't be that, that roommate. <laughs> exactly. I think that's, that's the parenting that mantra. That's the mantra. It's like you, you have to share space with people. The reason I do love this question is because it shows that this is like, we're still a very normal family, just doing the normal day-to-day stuff and like oh, yeah, yelling normal at normal day-to-day dad. struggles <laughs> along with the additional struggles. Yeah, exactly. How do you think that this experience has changed your co-parenting approach? Well, I feel like I've had to step up a lot more for sure. Again, uh, I alluded to Tamitha being the CEO. She takes care of the school notes and the registrations and the doctor's appointments and, and all of the logistical stuff for our daughter. I've had to do more of that. And it is quite honestly outside of my comfort zone. And, and it's in 
talking to my, my buddy back east, he's had to kind of do some similar stuff. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's just a matter of grinding it out again and stepping up and doing what you need to do to support your partner during the tough times and, and more rides, more dinner preparation, more of everything. Mm. And I've definitely had to step up and do a lot more of everything around the house at periods of time over the last few years. But uh, we've also had good support from friends uh, as well. And then when she is feeling good, that's when, again, she talked about it before, she jumps in and really probably tries to overcompensate for the downtime. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of co-parenting, Harper, you know, John has had to do a lot of that. And so a lot of times what that means is I know I'm laying in my bed, not feeling well. And he's, he has said yes to something that I would have said no to, or I hear them plotting and scheming about something that I want to be doing too, but I know I can't go, you know, when we get to the logistical pieces about like the cleaning and the cooking and all of that, like, I just have to let that stuff go. But the co-parenting I, you know, I had very strict rules with Harper, very, you know, boundaries about, um, and, and expectations and that, you know, when she was in eighth grade, it all just sort of unraveled and fell apart. And so, um, it is important for us to keep boundaries, um, so that she continues to feel like things are normal, that, that I haven't completely fallen away. And yet his parenting style is a bit different than mine when, because at this point we're not co-parenting, he's parenting or I'm, or we're back to co-parenting, right? I think it's been a bit of a co-parenting and parenting roller coaster, which I think mm -hmm. has been hard on, on Harper because, you know, I think she would say you are more fun than I am. Well, but to be clear, I think you've been saying yes a lot more to things. Yes than you otherwise would. Right. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, we've had to readjust. So now, if we do say no to something, she's like, like the end of the world. Wait a minute. <laughs> what? Like, Wait. What? <laughs> what do you mean no? Anyway, I'm sure there's therapists listening saying, ooh, this family is ripe for some therapy. Good thing they're there. Aren't but, we all? <laughs> like, who's not ripe for some therapy? But right? it is true. We, 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 do, we don't say no very much. Part of that is she'll be on her own. You know, she's a junior about to become a senior. So part of it is sort of this gradual, you know, letting go. I think she's been let go and pulled back, let go and pulled back quite a bit. She's definitely struggled with everything that's been going on with her mother. And so it's, it's almost as if we're at times walking on eggshells mm -hmm. for sure. And understanding that you can't just bring the hammer down and, and on something without it being a good reason, mm -hmm. I think more than anything. But mm -hmm. in terms of the co-parenting, it's really, <laughs> it's evolved for sure. And it's had to. You mentioned a little bit earlier about hope. When you're in research, you mentioned it. When you're researching, there's always that bit of hope that you would find a cure, but you then quickly default to treatment. 
we've gone into some depth around Tamitha's relationship with hope. I'm curious yours. What is my relationship with hope? <laughs> it's stretched pretty thin, but you can't live without it. You can't give up thinking that maybe there's something out there that can help. That's hope. There are therapies being developed. So there is hope that one of those becomes FDA approved or that she gets added to a test program with a new therapy at some point in time. There are a lot of unknowns, let's be clear. We know what the end game is. Between now and then, we don't know a lot how long she's gonna be on this particular treatment plan that she's on. If it continues to work, great. If not, then what? And it's always the then what? What's next? What is that? And I guess in that particular light, I hope that there is a new therapy out there that experimental or proven is available to keep her going as long as possible. Thinking about changing expectations, I don't think anybody lives anticipating that you'll get a diagnosis that changes the trajectory of your plans at best, right? Mm -hmm. How have you adjusted as two people who value control? Mm. <laughs> I don't know anyone who doesn't value control, mm. I don't think in some way, but as two people who are such doers and do kind of run ahead to make sure just you're a half step in front of whatever life brings so that you can be present to enjoy it and make the most of it. How do you cope with the pivot of what you dreamed of together and what you're sitting with now? It's almost as if I've had to take one path and carve it into two in terms of the outlook. And I'm not anywhere near down the other path at this point, but the groundwork is being laid. I have to have a plan of some sort at the end of this journey. Coping with it, I guess, is you know just living in the now, trying to live in the now more than I'm accustomed to doing. Mm. I've always, as the CFO, planned for the future, and I'm forced to basically split time between planning for the future and living for the now. And that is really hard for me to do. It is, she knows this. And so getting on board with the, the now, the immediate, I try to accommodate that as best I can, but that's not always easy. I mean, that's when- He means the trips. Yeah, the, the <laughs> trips that she starts planning. It's like, okay, well, that doesn't fit within uh, the budget, but I understand that it's important to do let's come to a compromise about how we might be able to do some of these things. And, and, and so the last couple of trips that we were able to take were absolutely fantastic. And I wouldn't change that for anything. You know, I thought we'd be in our eighties mm -hmm. together in a retirement community, someplace playing shuffleboard and <laughs> doing all the things that drinking whiskey together, uh, drinking whiskey together. Yeah. Manhattan's, uh, or old fashioned. <laughs> I know that he is working really hard um, to be in the now with me. And I do love that about you, um, that I know it's hard and you're doing it anyway. You know, I used to look at young women like in their 20s and have like a little tinge of jealousy about them. Like, oh, to be in my 20s again, you know, I mean, we were married when I was, I, I just turned 24, but like to be young again. 
And I tell you, when I see an older couple walking hand in hand down the beach, um, that's who I'm most jealous of. I'm most jealous of that um, because I only saw that for me. And walking down the beach, retired, just having fun together. Um, in that chapter, knowing that our girl is healthy and well and doing what she loves, I won't get that. And so um, the pivot has been grieving. Uh, it, it's meant grieving. And there is also quite a bit of anxiety about finances on my part that I've, I usually don't have. Look, I, it's a privilege. Everything we've talked about here today, me yeah. being able to have treatment in not in my hometown, accessing all of that is a privilege. But because I know that John is going to have to do college on one income and, and not two, you know, he's left, I think, really worrying about his own health because God forbid something happened to him. He's the, <laughs> he's the strongest of the two at this point. There's a lot of worry that that this has caused the family, John in particular. Um, but I think the pivot for me is more. I think it's exactly why I have to stay in the now. If I if I go down the other path, it makes it nearly impossible to do so. Once I'm not here anymore, how do you hope to know that I'm still around you? Like, do you think I'll be able to still, like, let you know that I'm there? Is so that important So you're asking you? if you uh, can haunt me. <laughs> permission to haunt? For some permission to haunt. No. Uh, well, you'll always be with me. Uh, you'll always be in my mind. I will carry some of your ashes with me wherever that may be but you'll always be with me you'll always be a part of me i am not a cute crier this would have to be an audio only episode <laughs> is there anything you want anyone who is sitting in seats like yours to know be flexible be willing to have your world turned upside down be willing to take that journey wherever it leads you just have to adapt and move on it's just about perseverance it's just about adapting to your surroundings your situation and doing what you need to do to support your partner support your family and create an atmosphere that can be as normal as possible understanding that it's anything but normal. My granddad used to say normal is just the cycle on the washing machine anyway. <laughs> well, that's a great point. <laughs> What's normal these days? What is normal? I don't know if I've realized my full potential yet. I don't even know if I know what I want to do with my life at this point, but it's Having that as an option, I've found to be a luxury because I know many others don't necessarily have that option. So 
for me, what people should know about me is I'm just a simple guy from a hardworking family that tries to do as much good as possible, is certainly capable of screwing up from time to time, but at the end of the day, just wants to provide for his family and, and make sure that they are okay and that our daughter is fully supported in all that she does going forward. That's going to be my, my big role. And I'm happy to be still sitting here with my beautiful wife. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, sweetheart. You're welcome. We'll be right back with the rest. Inspiration for living from Matters About Dying. A Burst of Light, a poem by Audre Lorde. I want to live the rest of my life, however long or short, with as much sweetness as I can decently manage, loving all the people I love and doing as much as I can of the work I still have to do. I'm going to write fire until it comes out of my ears, my eyes, my nose holes, everywhere, until it's every breath I breathe. I'm going to go out like a fucking meteor. If you're enjoying exploring the life-death legacy continuum, come back to keep diving in with us here. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on Instagram. We're grand.exit. And sign up for our newsletter at grandexit.com slash newsletter. And most importantly, share. Please do share this by starting a conversation about life, death, and legacy with someone who matters to you. There's so much waiting for you there. Join us every other Thursday as we bring death to life for those who intend to be remembered. Catch you next time.